Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. We're going to get into the word this morning. I love the video announcements. You see that empty plate? The picture for the fast it showed an empty plate. Uh, so we are going to go on a 21-day fast. This will be our 19th annual 21-day fast. And uh, that's what I want to talk about this morning. Uh, I know. Can you imagine that? Right after, you still have leftovers from Christmas, and I'm going to talk about fasting. Uh, so let me open with a, with a passage here. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. And he goes on and on, a time for everything under the sun. There is a time for eating, we're still in that time. So after we're done this morning, you go home and enjoy your leftovers. But there is a time for fasting. There's a time to do without food. And uh, that's what I want to look at this morning. We've been doing uh, an annual fast, like I said, for the last 19 years. And uh, fasting is a fascinating thing. It, uh, it really is a mystery. How many of you ever wondered why we fast? Anybody ever, just raise your hand if you've ever wondered, what, what's the deal with this thing? If you haven't, wait till the third day. You'll be wondering. I'm telling you what, every year about the third day I start thinking, what is this crazy thing we've gotten into? Uh, but fasting is a spiritual discipline ordained by God for a specific purpose. Matter of fact, there are numerous purposes, but we're going to focus on one this morning that we really want to look at because it really is the purpose behind our fasting. There are different types of fasts in Scripture. Uh, there is a, a fast for intimacy, just to draw close to the Lord, and that's a wonderful thing. Uh, but that's not what we're going to be talking about this morning. We're going to be talking about a fast for breakthrough, a fast for to garner power from on high. Now that, in and of itself, is somewhat of a controversial statement. Uh, many of you have heard me say, I, I have a friend that uh, pastored in town here for many years, wonderful man of God, and he asked me, this was, man, 17 years ago, he said, Dave, he said, I heard you guys fast a lot over there. Now, that's kind of subjective statement. I don't know if we fast a lot. Uh, there have been seasons where we've done that more than others, but I said, yeah, we fast, and he said, you know, I just don't fast. He said, I'm too rooted in grace to fast. And when he said that, I actually understood what he meant. It wasn't that he's a heretic. It wasn't that he's uh, someone that isn't surrendered to the Lord. But there is a failure of understanding in that statement. There's a misunderstanding of the place that fasting takes in the believer's life. And so I want to I deal with that this morning. I want to address it. And this is, this is not a new subject. We'll, a lot of times we'll visit this subject at the first of the year during the, or during the fast. Uh, I want to say, uh, I, really I've lost kind of track of time in 2020, 2021. Uh, it all kind of melted together because of COVID and all, the, the, all that happened during that time. But we did a, a significant series on intercession during that time. And I'm going to revisit some of that material this morning just to do a cursory overview because it really is important for us to understand this, this subject matter. When you're talking about fasting and intercession, it really does pull you into the vortex of some real controversy, in, in theological controversies, a lot of disagreements in the body of Christ. There are seeming contradictions and people will jump to one end of the pendulum or the other end of the pendulum theologically. But fasting demands that we face some of these things and get behind the controversy. And I would propose to you that when we look at some of these theological arguments, uh, uh, you know, Calvinism versus Arminianism, works versus faith, the sovereignty of God versus the authority of the believer, 
when we find where those valid truths, and there's valid truths on both ends of those theological, that, that, that pendulum swing, when we find where those things merge, we find some real treasures. You, you ever heard the thing that, that the phrase X marks the spot, it, it's where you find the treasure? That's true theologically. If you can find where those theological truths converge, there's some valuable treasures for us as believers, some keys to unlock some, some uh, valuable things for us. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this morning. Father, we do thank you for the season, Lord, for the opportunity to get together with family, friends, and celebrate your incarnation, Jesus. The fact that you were willing to take on the human condition, a condition you still retain. Lord, we thank you that you made that sacrifice not just at Calvary, but in the manger. We thank you for what you've done for us. Now, Lord, we're asking that you would enlighten our minds to hear your word this morning. And Father, I ask in these next couple weeks, Lord, that you would establish us and set our heart towards breakthrough. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I gotta make a comment about Christmas. I alluded to it in my prayer. Uh, the fact is, you know, when Jesus took on human flesh, the incarnation was not a temporary state that Jesus took on. I think a lot of times believers assume that Jesus zipped on an earth suit for 33 years and then he dropped that. And now he's back to the original condition that he enjoyed previous to that. But that is not the case. Paul is very clear. I want to say it's in 2 Timothy chapter 1. It says there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Now when Paul penned that, of course that was long after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the Father. But Paul still referred to Jesus as a man. Now, the scripture is never sloppy in its use of language. Uh, it, it, he's not just using terminology to relate with us, but he didn't really mean it. Jesus is still a man. So in the incarnation was the first step towards redemption. When Jesus took on human flesh, God could never divorce himself from humanity again. Because God became man. And so God couldn't say, I'm going to wash my hands of this mess and start over with another race, another species. What he did is he merged himself. He became a human being. And so if God were to forsake man, he would have to forsake himself. It's an amazing thing. And so it wasn't just at the cross that Jesus redeemed us. It was in the manger that he started this wonderful, redemptive story where he took on human flesh. God became one of us so that we could become like him. He took on our nature that we could share in his nature. Scripture's clear that we are partakers of the divine nature. But the only reason we can be partakers of the divine nature is because God became partaker of human nature. It's an amazing thing. And so we'll get back into that next year at Christmas time, extract myself out of the holiday. Okay, so fasting. We wanna look at this subject of fasting. And uh, it really is a mystery. Uh, and and, and I, I say that half jokingly that when I get into a fast about the third day, I begin to wonder, what is this all about? But I'm only half joking. I, fasting for me really does entail some head games once I get into it because there's this spiritual warfare that goes on and the enemy, it, it, just my flesh in and of itself wants to eat, okay? I don't need the devil to entice me, but he does. But that he, he has a, an ally behind enemy lines called my appetite that he begins to poke on. Uh, but when I begin to fast, there really are those, those head games that I, I, I wonder, you know, God, what does this really matter in the big scheme of things? And part of the reason I'm talking about this this morning is I was just on the phone with a, a pastor friend of mine that pastors in another state, and he was asking me about this whole thing of fasting. He said, he said I, I just don't get it. What does it matter? And that's a really good question to ask. 
What does it really matter in the big scheme of things if you skip a Twinkie? Or a, some of you are more healthy than that. If you skip, uh, you know, if you skip meals for several days, what difference does that make in eternity? What difference does that make in the spiritual realm? And I'm here to tell you, it really does make a difference. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, said to his disciples, to the crowd, he said, when you pray, when you fast, and when you give. He didn't say if you do those things. So he implied that fasting is part of the Christian life. That that's part of how we follow after Jesus, that we skip some meals every now and then. There is the intimacy element to that, that we can draw close to him through fasting, and that's a valid form of fasting. There is the sheer discipline part of it, and there's something valid about that. There are times where I'll fast just to tell my body, you're not going to tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. I'm going to grab it by the nap of the neck and drag it around for a while and tell it you're not going to get anything to eat because my spirit man is in charge. And that is a valid element of fasting. But the greater element of fasting is that we begin to participate in God's plan. So let me just pause there. We've, we've talked about this idea a number of times over the last couple of years, and we really got into it when we were talking about intercession and, and prayer. We did a whole series on a theology of prayer. I think you can still find it on the podcasts. And we did week after week on this whole thing, and, it was, and it's an important thing for us to understand. But we need to understand that fasting and intercession Uh, Those things, even what, you know, when Jesus was talking in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, when you fast, when you pray, and when you give. He coupled these, or he, he, he tied those three things together, fasting, praying, and giving, all together in the Sermon on the Mount. And there's a reason for that. I'll never forget, it was probably about six, seven years ago now, we were in the middle of our 21-day fast. We were about two-thirds over with it, and uh, Julian Christensen was here leading worship, and I was sitting in the back, uh, frankly feeling very apathetic at, at day 14 in the fast, and uh, Julian, she, she says to everybody, she said, I want to pray for those who are struggling with apathy tonight. If you're struggling with apathy, come forward. And I thought, well, I don't want to be apathetic about my apathy, so at least I could do is go forward. And I went forward, and as soon as I got forward, the Lord surprised me by speaking to me this phrase. This is what he said. He said, it's not a coincidence that I mentioned giving along with prayer and fasting in the Sermon on the Mount, because they're all three can be weapons of breakthrough. Now, I was very surprised. I'd never thought of giving as a weapon of breakthrough. I was, when I was talking to that pastor this last week, I mentioned that to him, and I did mention to him, now we as pastors need to be very, very careful with that principle. But the fact that we need to be careful with that principle, because you'd never want to manipulate someone with the word of God, But the fact is, just because we have to be careful doesn't negate the reality of that principle. Fasting, prayer, and giving can be weapons of breakthrough. And the Lord reminded me of the Roman centurion who was crying out to God and and an angel visits him and reveals himself to him and he says this. He says, your alms to the poor, that's your giving, And your prayers have brought you before the face of God. That his giving had actually garnered him breakthrough. Resulted in an angelic, or or rather a a visionary encounter for Peter. And the breaking open of a whole other people group. The Gentiles, which you and I came in on that thing. Because of this Roman unbeliever crying out to God, giving to the poor, and the scripture says that it brought him before the throne of God. The language is that it brought him to God's attention. What is that? It goes back to that principle that Jesus taught us, 
And it's not just isolated to giving, but he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, where you put that which you value, your heart becomes invested in. And so by giving of our treasure, we're giving more of our heart. We're we're actually investing ourselves into a commitment. We can do that with food or without food, more accurately. When we take those things we value and we invest them in the kingdom of God, it actually directs our heart. Matter of fact, if you are struggling in a relationship, I would recommend take something of value and invest it in that relationship and you will see your heart begins to follow. Make sure it's something you value, but begin to invest and your heart will follow. Some of you, if you invest in stocks and uh, if you invest in uh, you know, you, you'll, you'll get out the paper and before that you couldn't have cared less what Walmart was doing. But suddenly when you invest in Walmart, you're opening up the paper and you're tracking that. Why? Because your heart's following it, because you've invested yourself into it. And there is a, there is a sense in which we can give for breakthrough. When the Lord spoke that to me, we took up a, an offering for the poor that year. And we intentionally did it, that we're, it wasn't going to be anything that Heartland was going to receive. We're going to receive that money and then we're going to give it away to the poor. And we did it for breakthrough because there's something about giving of ourselves to the kingdom. And fasting belongs in that whole category. When we talk about prayer and fasting and giving, all of these things... Often, and it goes back to what that pastor said to me when he said, I'm too rooted in grace. What he was saying is that he understands that Jesus paid the price for me. We use the phrase, Jesus did it all. We use the theological phrase, the finished work of Christ. But that terminology, the finished work of Christ and Jesus did it all, belongs squarely to the context of salvation to the theological category called soteriology, the study of our salvation. And Jesus did do it all for your salvation. You can't earn your salvation. You have nothing to add. You simply surrender and receive. And in this context, you are, your role is merely a recipient. He's the savior, he did the work, and you receive the benefits. You are a recipient. But that is not the only context of our Christian life. There's an entirely other context. This has to do with where you begin your walk, but we grow into maturity where we no longer are merely recipients, we are participants. We have a role to play. Whereas that is salvation, this is ministry. This is where we receive, over here is where we give. We become a participant in this thing. And matter of fact, it's an interesting study we don't have time to get into this morning, but this is the area of Christology or the the ministry of Jesus. If you look at from Scripture, if you begin to theologically look at Jesus' ministry, Jesus' ministry always takes place outside of us with us as the, the target of his ministry. You can see it in Romans chapter 8 when we talk about intercession. Jesus is the great intercessor. In Romans 8, there's two intercessors. Well, really three. There's Jesus interceding for us, the Spirit interceding for us, and us participating with him as intercessors. But when Jesus intercedes for us, we're the subject matter of his prayers. But when the Spirit intercedes for us, we are the vehicle of his prayers. He uses our vocal cords, our tears, our mind, our heart, our prayers are coupled with his. We're participants. And you see this throughout scripture. Matter of fact, in Ro- that's in, Ro- yeah, later in Romans 8. Earlier in Romans 8, it says this, that Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law for us. They were in Christ, they're fulfilled. That's the finished work of Christ. But it goes on to talk about how now the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled by us through the Spirit. So there's, when it, 
get, I'll get down to the weeds here. Let me put it this way. Someone asked me the other day, do we still need to obey the law? People, yes, no, yes, no. Well, you've got to define what you mean by the law. The, the law can really be divided into two categories. You need to divide it from there. The, the Mosaic law, the law from God, can be divided into two parts. There is the mediatorial aspects. Those are the sacrificial codes that were going to make us right with God. We, they, would, they would sacrifice an animal, shed the blood to cover the sin for another year. Those are the mediatorial aspects. Then there were the moral aspects. Do not lie. Do not steal. You know, uh, don't murder. The, the Ten Commandments. The moral ethical code of the law. Now we understand that we no longer has to, have to sacrifice animals. But that doesn't mean we're no longer required to live the moral code. These ethical requirements are still something we're to live up to. No one would say, yeah, I murdered my, my aunt, but we're not under the law. If you do say that, I need to counsel you, okay? We need to meet. I'll meet you at the police station, by the way. <laughs> my first counsel is you gotta confess. So there's the mediatorial aspect and the moral aspect. The mediatorial aspects of the law were fulfilled for us by Jesus. He was the sacrificial lamb. He died. Fulfill it. It's over. We don't have to obey the law. We're free from the law. But the moral aspects of the law are fulfilled in us by the Spirit. Romans 8 clearly says that those who walk after the Spirit will fulfill the law. They're going to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. And so it's when it comes to Jesus, he did it for us. When it comes to the Spirit, he does it as and through us. The provision of God is for both salvation for, and justification, or justification and sanctification, to get us in the door and to live the life, if you want to say it that way. We're born again and we mature by the Spirit. But there's two different ministries. The, the ministry of Jesus is he did it for us. It's a done deal. And when you look at Jesus' ministry all through Scripture, it's always outside of us with us as the target, us, us as the focus of his ministry. He does it on our behalf. That's Jesus. But the ministry of the Spirit is an inside job. He does it as us, and we kept keep in step with the Spirit, and he strengthens us and equips us so that we can live up to the righteous requirements of the law. Does that make sense? So do we live according to the law? Yes and no. It's the law of the Spirit. They who keep in step with the Spirit, those who walk after the Spirit, will fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. But it's not a matter of you know, looking through every jot and tittle of the law. It's looking at the moral code and keeping in step with the Spirit. It's a higher law. It's the law of love. It's the law of Christ. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, you have heard it said unto you. He's referring to Moses. You have heard it said unto you, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, what he's saying is I'm giving you a law that supersedes the law. I say unto you, if you look lustfully upon a woman, you have already committed adultery in your heart. He didn't lessen the law. He raised the moral code. Now it's no longer a thing where don't do the act. He's saying don't Think about it. He wants to transform us from the inside out so that we no longer desire those things. And that's the work of the Spirit in our life. What I'm saying this morning in regards to fasting and intercession and even giving, that has nothing to do with your salvation. Jesus already paid for it. You don't buy your way into heaven through a tithe. And you don't buy your way into heaven by fasting. I'm not more acceptable to God because I do or don't fast. That's good news because my shirt tells me this morning that I haven't fasted in a while. We don't purchase that. That's already taken care of. But I do participate in God's ministry in the earth. I'm a participant participator of the divine nature. He comes to live in me, sets up resident, and I became a vehicle, an agent of the kingdom of God on earth. 
And if we don't understand that, we relegate ourselves to simply being consumers in the kingdom. Well, Jesus did it all. I don't have to do anything. And we don't. And then we wonder why there's no power in our life, no passion in our life. It's because we've lost purpose. We have a purpose this side of heaven. Otherwise, you could just have altar calls and then God could take us to heaven right away. We've got a job to do and we do that in conjunction with the Spirit. And fasting belongs to this whole side of Christianity. That is about, intim- that is about uh, relationship and salvation and the born again experience and that's a free gift. Over here, we are participating with him. When James says that faith without works is dead, this is where you get into works. It's not that we're earning anything, but it is the fruit of faith, and we participate with him and we grow up in him. I don't want to merely be a consumer. I believe in this thing called the gospel, and I want to see it get to the ends of the earth, and I want to do whatever I can to see that happen. I want to invest my life, and when I stand before God, you know, there are rewards in heaven. You're not rewarded for what Jesus did. When when we wait to hear from the Father, well done, thou good and faithful servant, what is he talking about? It's not about this. Jesus did it all. But there is something he's going to say to you or not say to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant. It's over here. What has God called you to do? What is your role? What is he calling you to partake of and enter in on and see happen in the earth? And until you touch that, you will live a purposeless, boring, bland life. God wants you to grow into this thing where we are participators, where we take his yoke upon us and we pull with him. That God has put gifts and abilities within you and he wants to see those exercised for his glory. That has nothing to do with you being over here just receiving of what he did. That's over here. And there is a reward that you will receive for living in that manner. So there's a whole other side to Christianity that our overemphasis, and okay, I'm going to step on some toes. And I might even be making an overstatement when I say it this way. The overemphasis on grace, I wouldn't say we overemphasize it, but we do it to the neglect of the other side. Now, the grace of God applies over here because it's by grace that we put to death the misdeeds of the flesh and by grace we live the life and we minister. The same grace of God that saves you, we're saved by grace, Ephesians 2 says. Later on, in that, in chapter, that's chapter one, chapter two of Ephesians, it's, Paul says, surely you have heard of the grace on my life that makes me an apostle. That has nothing to do with salvation. That's all about ministry. And that living in that calling, filling that role, cost him dearly. Read 2 Corinthians. He was stoned, left for dead, beaten with rods, whipped, shipwrecked, left naked, and yeah, I'm starving. That was all over here. That had nothing to do with salvation. That had to do with the crown that would be placed on his head when he arrives. This is about the reward. And it's the grace of God, Paul said, that made that enabled him to live up to that standard, to do those things. It's the same grace. It's all by grace. But on the one, we're simply recipients. The others, we're participants. We are, we are uh, cooperating as he operates. We're cooperating with the grace of God in our life. But this is about maturity This is about us growing in to our identity and fulfilling our destiny. What is the assignment of God for your life? It's not merely for you to receive and sit back and be a consumer. It's for us to find out, God, what did you put within me and what do you want to get out of me to make an impact for the kingdom in this moment in human history? You know, you hear people say there's no tears in heaven. Yes, there is. They will be wiped away. But it says 
that he'll be wiping tears away in heaven. And I believe the tears will cry as we'll look back and we'll look at the opportunities we didn't seize, the things we could have done that we didn't do. And in that day, it isn't gonna matter the size of house we had and all those other things. All that's gonna matter is we're looking at eternity and we have this little blip, this little breath that we lived on earth. Did we invest time in eternity? Many of you have heard the phrase by Jim Elliott, the, the young man that was a martyr. The Aka Indians killed him and his friends when they tried to preach the gospel to him. He's famous for a lot of quotes, but one of the best was this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's just a more eloquent way of saying he spent his life on eternity. Ben had us singing that this morning. Lord, help us to see eternity. It really does set things in perspective. Many of you know if you've had sick loved ones over the last year and a half and some of us have lost family and there's something about losing a loved one or almost losing them that has a way of setting things in perspective, doesn't it? All of a sudden, the things that really matter don't really matter so much anymore. Why? Because we're getting nearer to eternity. It's like we're, we're on the threshold. We're almost pressing through that veil. And it has a way of kind of bleeding back and redefining everything. So fasting belongs to this. Fasting is us jumping in on this thing and we're going to invest our life. So that's the first thing we need to understand about fasting. Fasting is not about salvation. Salvation is a free gift. What you do with it is where fasting resides. Fasting it belongs to that body of stuff, theological stuff for which we will get a reward. And there is a reward for fasting. Anything we invest in the kingdom. Now, the other thing we need to understand, we can never understand fasting unless we understand this concept of authority. Because fasting is connected to authority. What do I mean by that? Well, God has delegated the earth to man. When I say that fasting belongs to this, it brings you into the convergence of these theological arguments. You know, there's, there's one theology, Calvinism, that says that, in essence, you can shorten, and there's, there's, there is a, uh, what, what's the word, a scale upon which Calvinism, there's very strong Calvinism, and there's four-point Calvinism and all that, but the idea behind Calvinism is the sovereignty of God is one of the strongest elements. The other element, interestingly enough, is the anthropology or the view of man that Calvinism holds. If you begin to look, listen to Calvinists versus non-Calvinists, Arminiists, and look at how they view man, it is very, very different. Matter of fact, hyper-Calvinists, they don't view man a whole lot differently after salvation. They still retain the worm theology after salvation. And it's out of a desire to glorify God and really elevate man's view of God, which is a noble thing, but in my estimation, my humble opinion, they go too far and neglect where God has put man. And so that's why Calvinism often is, uh, th that, there's several other reasons, but there's a, there's a philosophical, a theological consistency between Calvinism and cessationism. And Arminianism, which really emphasizes the authority of man and still believing in spiritual gifts. What do I mean by that? Well, there's the theology that says the sovereignty of God that literally believes that everything that happens is God's will. And the flip side of that coin is God's will always happens. And even though some of you say, whoa, I don't believe that, I'm not so sure you don't. Because of the way you talk. We'll say things like, some tragic things happens, and we'll say, well, I don't know why God allowed that. Why did God allow that? Why did he do that? Or to help us deal with it, we'll say, well, I know God has a reason. As if God is the one orchestrating everything. And there is a theological school of thought that believes that. 
Ephesians chapter 1 talks about God conforming all things to the purpose of his will. It doesn't say he performs them, he conforms them. And so these, these kind of things really need to be wrestled through because when you believe these things over here, a lot of times those churches that believe this, and, and, I, and let me just pause and say, I know some really stellar men and women of God that reside in this camp, okay? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not questioning their heart. I'm, I'm talking about the way I see the word, how I read the word. And there's a reason that within this camp you don't see houses of prayer, You don't see people talking about prayer and fasting a lot because there's a disconnect between human behavior and results because all things are ordained by God. And so you'll hear when when you talk about suffering over here, the, the way that man interacts with God is we surrender to the purposes of his will and allow life to shape us. And I want to tell you, people that believe that, often they are people of tremendous character because they, are, they, they keep their heart right in the midst of great trials, trying to yield themselves and believing God knows best. And, and so I'm not questioning their heart, but I am questioning their effectiveness at times. And so... When you begin to say everything that happens is God's will and God's will always happens, then it really undermines the motivation of prayer and people are disengaged because it's really hard to justify to get up at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning and drive over to the church for prayer when it really isn't going to make a difference because God's will is always done and everything that happens is already God's will. And so it's really hard to engage our hearts. And again, I'm not, I'm not questioning the heart of those people. I have a hard time engaging my heart, and I don't believe that, okay? So, so what we need to see is that there's this other end of the authority of the believer. And you see this in Psalm chapter 8, where David says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you would visit him? You made him a little lower than the angels. In the Hebrew, in Psalm 8, it says a little lower than the Elohim. A lot of people think that Elohim is a title for God, but it's not. It's a, it's a, a class or a, even a species of spiritual being. Elohim is used of different, different spiritual beings in Scripture. But God is an Elohim, but not all Elohims are God. <laughs> not all Elohims are Jehovah. That's a, another study for another time, but you can... See me later. I'll show you, okay? But God made man a little lower than the Elohim and put everything under his feet, Psalm chapter 8. The writer of the book of Hebrews picks that up as a theme in chapter 2, and he adds something to it. He says this. He quotes, he says, What is man that thou art mindful of, and the son of man that you would visit him? You made In the Greek it says a little lower than the angels because they, they're in a rare way, Greek is not as specific as some of the terminology the Hebrews used. And so he says, made a little lower than the angels and put everything under his feet. But then the writer of Hebrews adds this, yet at present we don't see everything subject to him. Why? He goes on to say, but we do see Jesus made a little lower than the angels. Now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death for all of us. That, that last part's a paraphrase, but that's what he's saying. And really what it is, in Hebrews chapter 2, we have this little snapshot that is very, very helpful for studying a lot of subjects, but especially prayer and fasting. In Hebrews 2, we have an overview of redemptive history. He said, what is man that thou art mindful of him, the son of man that you would visit him? You put everything You made him a little lower than the angels and put everything under his feet. That is original creation, okay? That was God's original picture that he set man in the garden, put everything under his feet. But then the writer of Hebrews adds, yet at present we don't see everything subject to him. That is stage two. That is the devastation of the fall where man abdicated his role and gave his authority away. 
Then it says, but we see Jesus made a little Lord of the angels. Stage three of redemptive history. We see Jesus coming in the incarnation so he can seize back as a man what was taken from us as men. So Jesus became part of the human race, took on the human form, and he lived a righteous life. Ephesians chapter one, it's the last two verses of chapter one. It says this, because it's interesting to me. Psalm eight says God put everything under man's feet. Hebrews two says God put everything under man's feet. But then in Ephesians one, it says God put everything under Jesus' feet, comma, for the church. So we have our authority given back to us that was ours in creation. We abdicated through sin. We receive back through redemption, but only in Christ. It's not that God took our authority. It's that we willingly gave it away through sin. So we can't operate in that authority. We've been, we abdicated that role and the enemy now uses our authority to manifest his kingdom. Which brings us back to fasting. In Christ, we have the authority that we were created with. And so under Christ, we have that, we have that back. Now, so what do I mean by that? Authority is a big part of fasting. When I was talking to that pastor the other day, I, 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 said, to the, I said this to him, that the human will... okay. Bear with me. The human will is the hallway through which heaven is connected to earth. It's also the hallway through which hell is connected to earth. Both heaven and hell are manifest through humanity because God put everything under our feet and the enemy knows that. And so if you want to manifest heaven, if you want to see the kingdom of heaven come, what God needs is human cooperation to do so. That's why we talk out of Hebrews chapter 2, when we did that series on prayer, we tore that, that passage down, and it really is a picture of redemptive history. Matter of fact, you can't understand any subject from Scripture without looking at the th those three lenses. you got to look at what was God's original intention, how did the fall affect it, and how does redemption affect it. And if you don't take those three things into consideration, then you won't fully understand that. And many people start their theology with the fall rather than original intention. If you don't start with original intention, if where you start is man in the fall, then you've got a twisted perception of what God's plan really is. You've got to see man first in God's original intention that God bestowed upon man tremendous authority and put the earth under him. And God will not violate the system he himself set up. It's not that God can't, he just won't. It's why we talk about prayer as divine intervention only by human invitation. If you want God to move in your life, then you engage in prayer. And when you really understand that principle, that God is not going to step in without stepping in through man, even to the point of becoming a man, that God is not going to do that, it will engage your heart in prayer. It'll ignite your heart, your passion to partner with heaven in this thing called prayer and fasting. So what does all this have to do with fasting? Here's what it has to do with. That with, when we fast, we are presenting our will to God in a greater way, Okay? If your will is the conduit through which heaven manifests itself, fasting is a way to clean out the conduit. It's a way to give your heart more so to God. When I first became the pastor of this church, uh, we were, I think it was the first year we fasted, the 21-day fast. We were in that fast. We were over in our old building, and I'm praying, and the Lord gave me a vision of my mother's Kool-Aid pitcher from when I was a kid. We were raised on Kool-Aid. 
We, pop was a luxury. I remember my mom and dad, every now and then they'd buy pop, but we had to split the can with something else. And I remember going to a picnic one time with my buddies, and I was shocked. They got a whole can to themselves. I believe me, my mom heard about it. We were raised on Kool-Aid. And so my mom had a burnt orange Kool-Aid pitcher. It was to play off the avocado green appliances in the kitchen. She had a burnt orange Kool-Aid pitcher. It was Tupperware, and it was one piece of plastic molded. There was the, the pitcher itself. There was a handle molded right into it and a little spout where the Kool-Aid came out. And then there was a white lid that perfectly fit down into it, and you could twist it. And when you twist it, on one side, there were three holes cut if you just wanted a slight flow of Kool-Aid of sugary luxury, or you could turn it around and there was a square hole that would line up with that spout and then the Kool-Aid would come out. Or you could close it off. And that's what the Lord showed me. And this is what he told me. He said, you are the lid on revival in this region. And I was deeply troubled. And in that picture, he showed me that Kool-Aid picture, and I knew. He didn't even have to tell me. I just intuitively knew that Kool-Aid picture was him. And part of his very nature was there was a spout. In his, he longed to pour out. It's part of who he is. But in partnership with him, I was the lid. And I was turned so that the opening in me, the willingness in me to allow it to flow through me, was just slightly lined up with the willingness in him, that part of his nature. And what he showed me was his hand coming down, and through fasting, he was turning me. He was bringing me into an alignment with his openness. Because the fact is, I wanted to see revival. I thought I really wanted to see revival until I started fasting. And then I realized I kind of want to see it, but what I really want is a burrito. <laughs> and God was dealing with my heart. He was getting at things that he was getting at things that were in the hidden recesses of my heart that I didn't even know were there until I began to deny my flesh. And all of a sudden those things were coming to the surface. It is easy to be spiritual. It was really easy to be spiritual. I made, I smoked six racks of ribs and we made a huge ham yesterday. And after lunch, I was very spiritual and tired. I was very nice to be around. But you deny me some food for a while and all of a sudden I'm getting at some things I don't even realize are in my heart. Let me close with a gross story before I send you to lunch, okay? <laughs> Any of you ever read the book, Bruchko? How many of you read it? Any, got, by a guy named Bruce Olson. He was a missionary to the Matalone Indians in the Amazon. 19-year-old kid from Minnesota, heard the call of God to go into the mission field, went to the missions board of the Lutheran church that he had, and they said, son, you're too young, you have no training, go, go to seminary, get some training, and then maybe we can get behind you. So he walked out of there and bought a ticket to Columbia, I believe it was, flew into Columbia and marched into the jungle. Wandered in there, ran into some natives who shot him full of arrows, <laughs> left him there. Another tribe found him, nursed him back to health, and he lived with them for quite a while. And then he thought, you know, I probably ought to go back to civilization, back to where I can communicate with my family and let my mom know I am alive. And every mama said, amen. So he tried to make his way out of the jungle, and he got lost. And he was exhausted and tired, and he fell asleep against a tree. And in the book, he talked about as he was sleeping, they're just exhausted because he hadn't eaten in quite some time. He was awoken by a, like a tickling in his throat, like almost like something's crawling, and he began to gag. He grabs inside his mouth and pulls out this long worm through it, and he was freaked out. And what he realized was that he had developed worms eating 
some of the food that he wasn't used to. But as long as he fed them, they stayed undercover. But when he began to deny them, they climbed to the surface. You know where I'm going here. I'm going to tell you, each of us have some worms God wants to get at. That when fed, you won't even realize they're there. But you start denying those things, and some of that stuff that you thought you'd overcome will start coming to the surface. I have, I'll get in arguments with God on a fast. I know you'd love to believe your pastor is more spiritual than that, but I'm not. I really think, God, what is, this is nuts. What, what, what does this have to do with anything? And it's because my flesh is screaming out, it wants something. But it also enables me to strengthen my will and say, God, I want you more. I believe your word more than I believe my own appetites. I want you more than I want a burrito. And sometimes it seems like they're in a dead heat for a while. But God can get after those things. And what he's doing is he's reaching down and grabbing the lid. You are the lid for your family, for this city, for your company. Fill in the blanks. You are the avenue through which he wants to pour through. Don't look to someone else. If only this person. No, you are the answer. You are heaven's answer. So we can yield ourselves and allow the Lord to begin to turn us and take the openness in us and align it with the openness in him. Fasting will align you and clear the way for God to begin to pour through you. You can't understand fasting without understanding authority. God has given you great authority. You get to determine what comes into your life spiritually. And fasting is the welcome to heaven and the resistance against hell. Amen? Let's go ahead and stand. Let's pray this morning. Father, Lord, I'm asking God that everything we talked about this morning, Lord, that you would, Lord, those parts that need to stick for various ones this morning, Lord, that you would strike us with those things, Lord. And God, that it would ignite our heart, Lord, that we would have a revelation of why this wonderful weapon, this wonderful tool of fasting is crucial for our lives. And Lord, I'm asking that that you would even put an excitement in our heart to go on this journey with you. Father, we thank you for what you're going to do. And Lord, I ask that you would direct each of us on how we're to participate with you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to encourage you. We're going to start the 10th. January 10th, go. we will close our fast the night of our annual business meeting. We always close it after the business meeting, and I'm telling you, it guarantees for a short business meeting. And, uh, but just ask the Lord what you should do. God would, I believe God would have us all, some of you, your health would demand you do different things, but uh, just ask the Lord. Let's jump in on this now, okay? Hey, I love you. Go eat. Enjoy this season of feasting, because fasting will soon be upon us. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.